0: Hello dear listeners, this is just Lawson here. I'm popping in at the beginning to let you know that we had a little bit of a problem with my audio this week. It appears to have been an issue with my microphone. It creates this horrific buzzing at times. It's very rare, but it's also very unpleasant. I've tried to edit around it as best I can this week, but I couldn't get everything. So I apologize in advance for the discomfort of having to listen to me marred by an awful crackling. I have gone and and bought a new microphone, which is what you can hear right now. This is what I'm recording on as I speak. So this will not be a problem in the future. In any case, sit back and prepare yourself for our discussion of the Prince of Egypt. Now I shall help gracefully transition us into the episode proper.
1: (laughs)
2: <laughs> Hello, my name is Holly Lewis.
0: I'm Lawson Keeney.
2: And I'm jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched a masterpiece. It is a movie, I'm assuming, from all of our childhoods? Mm-hmm. One that was really impactful on all of us. Prince of Egypt.
0: From the studio that brought you Ants, B-Movie, and Boss Baby, and the producer that brought you Quibi.
2: Do you like jazz? <laughs> anyway, we have to cover b-movie when we get to
0: it b-movie is not on the list why would you think that b-movie was on the list
2: the meme value
0: i've got to have some standards
2: it's marketing anyway but first we're going to get into what we've seen within the week lawson why don't you start us
0: off okie doke i have a relatively short for me at least what we've been watching segment this week and they have four movies to talk about the first of them is enemy of the state It is an action thriller directed by Tony Scott. It is about a lawyer named Roger Clayton Dean. He's played by Will Smith and he is unknowingly past evidence of some dodgy NSA stuff. They've been trying to get this bill passed that would allow them to spy on people. There's been this congressman that's holding it up until so they've killed him. And there's like footage of it and conspiracy theorists get a hold of it, but then the NSA goes after them, so they pass it along to Will Smith without him knowing about it. It's his whole thing. Anyways, the NSA starts going after Will Smith now and they start to frame him for all of these different crimes and he has to go on the run. He seeks assistance from this, this shadowy intel guy named Brill. He's played by Gene Hackman. He used to work for the NSA, but now he's off-grid, and Dean enlists him and his help. This is suitably thrilling and fast-paced. It's it's a paranoia film. It's very much about surveillance. They're always watching you. There's the eye-in-the-sky element. How can you run from this sort of omnipresent force? It's interesting that the the NSA is in this. It's yeah. interesting that people seem to care so much about the NSA having surveillance capabilities. That that's not real. Right, everyone found out that the NSA was listening to phone calls and stuff and it was like a communal shrug. But it is it is interesting to watch this now in twenty twenty and they're talking about oh the NSA they can listen to you they can record your phone calls, they can they can spy on you with satellites and you're just sitting there and you're thinking, Yep. Yep. Is, are we supposed to find this surprising?
2: It hits differently. It it Yeah.
0: But yeah. And and all of the stuff like like, oh, this this freedom, this personal freedom and, and liberty is something that we we will never give up, blah 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 and then it's just like, well, what, five years later Everyone was just signing on for the Patriot Act, and it's it's just like the kind of hyperventilating over over personal privacy and and freedom is uh, is ironic in retrospect. It, but but all of this paranoia and surveillance stuff sets up the action really well. It, it's very into conspiracy stuff, into the the spy angle of things. There's a lot of on the ground chase stuff, you know, running through gridlocked traffic and going through warehouses and old abandoned train yards and things. And it, it's got that kind of, I suppose, North by Northwest sort of classical paranoia thriller to it. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but it, it, it's also got a, a, an over-reliance on, on sort of the tech aspect of it, which is, is interesting. And it's certainly, to my knowledge, one of the first movies to start playing with this. But, I mean, it's 1998, so all the, the tech stuff seems kind of hokey in the present day there's there's my favorite thing watching procedurals or or spy stuff from back in the day where they have the 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 blurry recording and they're just like zoom and enhance on that (laughs) (laughs) as if that's a thing that happens
2: as someone who's done video editing (laughs) <laughs> I no. wish it was true. I wish that were the case, but it's not. <laughs> you can't create more pixels that aren't there. Especially back then. Now, my, the phone I've got now, pretty good. Pretty good. Still not as good as what they portrayed back then.
0: Will Smith is very good in it. This is this is sort of two years after Independence Day, I think one year after Men in Black. He's He's in that, he's in peak Will Smith mode. He's in that Movie star, rat a tat tat, one liner dialogue, very humorous sort of leading man kind of kind of mode here, and he's very fun. He brings humor to it and gives it some energy, which is is really good. But like the cast is just, it's it's a great cast. You've got Hackman as as this supporting character. He's very good in it. You've got John Voigt as the head of Did the. Did he NSA. pull it he's... back
2: a bit from? Did he pull it back from Anaconda?
0: Yes, very much so.
2: <laughs> that was madness. But
0: you've also got this, this really strong lineup of recognisable faces. You've got Regina King is, is in here, Jack Black, Seth Green, Jason Lee, Jamie Kennedy. They All of these these people turn up in little supporting roles. A lot of them before they were recognisable names. But you've also got a really good score by Harry Gregson Williams and, and Trevor Rabin that adds to a lot of of what's going on here. It's kind of a tech Hitchcock knockoff, and that's not a bad thing. I I enjoyed it. I next watched The Faculty, which is a science fiction horror movie directed by Robert Rodriguez. And it is this... It's about this ragtag group of, of different teenagers, kind of a breakfast club kind of situation where they've all got these different interests and personalities and they belong to different social groups. But the common phenomenon here is that they all become aware that their teachers and fellow students are being taken over by alien parasites as the first step in an alien invasion. This is is a very fun mix of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Scream. Kevin Williamson wrote the script for this, and of course he wrote Scream as well. You've you've got very Williamson-y sort of characters here and dialogue. It's such an aggressive high school. It's that kind of aggressive high school that you see in, in, like, 90s American teen movies where everyone's getting beat up and shoved into lockers and things. And
2: This is a hostile environment that I don't think I'd be... Like, I, I didn't have the easiest time starting high school, but it was not that.
0: It's It's got this kind of grungy tone, like this kind of really edgy, you know, where we're hip and cool and we're talking about things that kids are talking about. kind of thing which at times can be kind of
2: how do you do fellow kids
0: well it's better than that but at times it can be kind of like eyebrow raising but for the most part it it treads the line well enough and doesn't cross it but the, the the takeover stuff is good the the really tense stuff as these kids start to realize their their teachers are being taken over and that that's starting to spread to parents, to other students. I mean, that, that whole invasion of the body snatches, the thing kind of, are you who you say you are thing.
2: Well, it's always going to be compelling.
0: I mean, and they pretty much do the blood test scene from the thing over again in this to try and identify which one of them is an alien. The aliens are also very sinister and and fun and, you know, threatening. Like, it's good entertaining stuff. The acting is all very good as well. You've got a pretty accomplished cast here. You've got Elijah Wood, Jordana Brewster, Josh Hartnett playing these kids. You've got someone like uh, Piper Laurie as one of the teachers. And Jon Stewart is in it, in a dramatic role as the science teacher, and he gets to be scary Jon Stewart when he's taken over by an alien and he gets to fight these kids. It's kind of fun to see Jon Stewart in a dramatic capacity. He's not bad. Laura Harris, though, I've got to kind of call out. She's one of the teens and she is not great. She's not giving it the kind of heft that she needs to and the places that that character goes. But there's really cool effects, mostly practical effects, and you get some some pretty great monster stuff, particularly in the third act. It's a cool sci-fi take on post-Scream teen horror, which uh, I think you guys would actually really dig. It's available for streaming on Stan, if anyone is in Australia and interested. I next watched The Winter's Tale, which is, of course, a Shakespeare play. This is a recorded stage version. It's directed by Robin Lowe. It kind of straddles genres. It's, it's a drama, but there's also very strong comedic elements. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a weird one to have to categorise. But it's about the king of Sicilia. He's named Leontes. He's played by Anthony Sher. He thinks his wife Hermione, played by Alexandra Gilbreth, is cheating on him with his old pal Polixenes, king of Bohemia, who is played by Ken Bones. He has an epic hissy fit as a result and sort of causes a whole bunch of problems for all of the other characters, brings the kingdom into disrepute and things go poorly. This is the first Shakespeare play I've seen that I've had actual structural problems with. Right. There are two clear halves here. There's the first half. There's there's the him thinking that his wife is cheating on him and the suspicion and and the tantrums that he throws it's like othello and on steroids but it's not as compelling i don't know what happened to william shakespeare but he seems real concerned with the idea that women are cheating on people (laughs) like it's used as a plot point in a lot of his stories
2: yeah that that is problematic that tracks
0: (laughs) but um it's not well explored here, it's not well explored in the way that it is in Othello or Much Ado About Nothing. It, it it's just unjustified. We never see any reason why Leontes would, would suspect that Hermione was stepping out on him. And as a result it, it can kind of feel a little bit much. It's it, it it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to track a lot of the times. But you, you do get some really great Shakespearean dialogue in this first half and you do get some really great acting, especially from Anthony Sher. Anthony Sher is always good in Shakespeare. He's, I mean, he, he, he turns up in movies occasionally, not so much anymore, but he did in, in like the 90s, but he seems to sort of have just, you know, stuck to doing theatre stuff, especially Shakespeare, and he's very, very good at it. He holds the stage very well. So there's there's good stuff there, but, but then when he has the big epic hissy fit, it Flashes forward in time and you get all of the fallout years later and all of these, these people who have sort of gone their separate ways as a result of what happened. And he veers into this weirdly comedic tone in the second half, which the first half had none of. And it becomes like like, like much ado about nothing right. for, for a while there. And it keeps stopping the, the story so that we can have these song and dance sequences And there are a lot of them, a lot of them there, where these these characters will perform in the story for other characters in the story. And you get it. And admittedly, that was part of what Shakespeare did. He had that happen a reasonable amount in in his plays that where part of going to see Shakespeare was kind of like seeing a variety show because you were in 16th century England. What the hell else did you have to do for a day? So why not go and see this three-hour thing that had drama and song and dance and stuff? but it, it, it feels like padding, and it hurts the pacing, and it doesn't gel with the story that we have seen prior to this point.
2: I love hearing people critiquing Shakespeare on like those kinds of technical things. That just made me really happy that you were doing that. How come? I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's just, he gets sort of, people give him a pass because of so you know, it's the a fact satis- that he's Shakespeare. It's a is satisfaction satisfying? at seeing the bar get taken down a peg.
0: Oh well he has so many fantastic things, but like that's not to say that he didn't have misses every once in a while. I mean, who's out there talking about Timon of Athens? Timon of Athens is, I think, the only Shakespeare play that is not on the list in some capacity, because it's the only one that for the life of me I cannot find a recorded production of. Like.
2: <laughs> I, I I think for me it's just the joy in hearing you talk about this play that was written ages ago as if it was written you know today and i that's just enjoyable to me
1: yeah
0: well it 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 does it is has tonal problems in the second half it really does and we get a we spend a lot of time with the fool of this play right or autolycus Played by Ian Hughes, and it's a good performance, and it's one of actually one of the more amusing fools. But it's just again, it's like we're stopping the whole story to have this yeah. guy in here. So you could take him out with no repercussions whatsoever. It's almost whatsoever. like it
2: was two plays that Shakespeare figured. Yeah, kind of. This one's a little short. This one's a little short. Smash them together, change some names, put in some extended fool stuff. Because you've got to use the full sparingly. Yeah, it,
0: it is like a full three-hour Shakespeare thing. So if he had cut it down and made it like as short as Macbeth or something like that, he could have had a much tighter story. But it was... It's more... It's it's too drawn out. It, it feels sort of... It doesn't have the elegance and the... I don't, I don't know what, what word I'm looking for. It doesn't have the elegance and the meticulousness of a lot of Shakespeare's other stuff. And... It, it repeats a lot of tropes that he uses elsewhere. It's like I already mentioned the cuckold thing, but he also again pulls out the faking your own death thing again. Oh. This time the lady's been faking her death for sixteen years. William, my boy, it's like Bill, Bill, you gotta stop. I'll give you, I'll give you much ado about nothing, and I'll give you Romeo and Juliet. But you gotta, you can't keep pulling this trick. <laughs>
2: It's like, what is with you and not trusting women?
0: It's like, I don't know if like he had a girlfriend that you know he thought died and then years later he found out that she was actually just faked her own death so she could run off and cheat on him or something. <laughs> but
1: Just
2: never got over like, that.
0: What happens to you, William? It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> I was really like starting at that point just be like, oh, come on. But the staging of the production itself is simple. There's nothing groundbreaking here, really. It's it's just on a regular stage. Uh, it's it's got a lot of the stage has, has is quite a deep one. It goes back from the front of the stage quite far before you reach the back of it, and it it is a, a well done production. You get some fun moments where uh, they play with the audience a little bit, which I always like seeing. Like Anthony Sher, he's doing this monologue about about how does a man really know that his wife is faithful to him. And like he addresses it to this specific man and his wife in the audience. (laughs) Like things like that, that are that like just sort of mucking around with the audience that I always get a kick out of when I watch these things. But as I said, Sher is typically magnificent and you get some really good Estelle Kohler and Emily Bruni performances in in supporting roles. But it's not top tier. It's overlong and it's repetitious. There's good dialogue though. Uh, Shakespeare was always... Very good at dialogue. Lastly, this week, I watched a movie called Virus, which Mm. is a science fiction horror movie directed by John Bruno. He was James Cameron's VFX guy. Still is, actually. He's like the VFX supervisor on on a lot of his films. Did stuff on Avatar, Titanic, Terminator, The Abyss, all of them. And this is his only directorial credit, to my knowledge. it's about this rowdy crew of a ship... Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Sutherland are in there. Donald Sutherland is the captain. Jamie Lee Curtis, is the first officer. And they're a cargo ship and they get caught in the middle of a typhoon and they lose their cargo in it. And so now they're going to be in a bad financial spot when they get back to, to shore. But then they come along a, a derelict Russian science vessel that they board... To, to claim for salvage to make up their losses, only to find that it has been infested by an electricity alien that has beamed down from a satellite from space and has infected the computer systems on board. Go. It is the titular virus. It's a computer virus. This is really rote and unimaginative. It's got cool effects, but we've seen it all a thousand times. I mean, it's it's the same thing you've, you've seen elsewhere, people getting pursued through the ship you know it's it's sort of a weird mix actually of like a haunted house thing and a monster movie because on the one hand you got like the virus possession stuff that is sort of gives it that haunted house element where the ship is is doing things that they can't control but then the 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 electricity alien has also started to build with spare parts all of these robots and androids and cyborgs and things like it's it's melded together the body parts of the dead russian crew with a whole bunch of of electronic stuff to create these monsters that chase them through the the, the cool. ship it is cool and it's cool effects like the, the monsters look good they are practical for the most part but and and they, they look good they look creepy and that part of it's fun, but it, it's narratively it's doing nothing new. It is, as I said, that sort of mixture of the haunted house element and the thing where they're being pursued by this, this these creatures. And, of course, you get the whole the other thing from the thing is we, we can't let it get back to shore because then this virus will infect the computer systems yeah. and it will take over the whole world. So Sink the ship. It's, it's just, yeah, well, what do you think they end up doing, Sean? <laughs> it's, it's predictable. We've seen it all before. There are no characters here either. There are just no people with definable personalities or, or character traits. They're like husks of human beings. And and no one does well here. But Donald Sutherland is uncharacteristically terrible. Like, he he seems like he just doesn't care. He seems like he barely even remembers his dialogue, that he learned it on the morning or something. And he's just like trying to recall it as he goes along. Like, there's no finesse to anything that he's doing. Although, props to the, the, the costumer people, he does very much look look the part of, of the, the sort of grizzled sea captain from Maine.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look at his face, it's just...
0: Oh, and he's got, like, the long navy coat and the, and the, the captain hat on and awesome. everything. Like, he, he... It's very... He looks the part. But there's some good atmosphere here they they do some decent stuff especially as I said with with the design of the the monsters and the design of of the ship as they're going through it and the the FX stuff just general because it's not all practical you do get some CGI and as I said the director is, is was James Cameron's uh, VFX guy so he he gets some really uncharacteristically great CGI for a 1998 horror movie
2: because that's the thing he's really interested in.
0: But it also cost $75 million. And I learned that after watching the movie. And I was like, how? How? Did, like, they embezzle it or what? (laughs) Because I can't see any of that on the screen. And it was a huge flop as a result. It didn't make anywhere near $75 million when it came out in cinemas. But it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a horror movie. It's as derelict of life as The Ship is. It's, yeah, I can't recommend it. Anyways, that's me done for the week. What have you guys been watching?
2: Okay, so, this week, we watched a film that also has Donald Sutherland, but in this one, he's very good. We watched Lock Up, which is a Sylvester Stallone film, where it follows Sylvester Stallone's character who gets transferred into a maximum security hellhole of a prison because the warden of this prison played by Donald Sutherland, just has it out for him, because Stallone's character escaped from the previous prison and proved that Sutherland was being corrupt. And Stallone's character only went to prison to begin with defending someone else. Yeah. Uh, And so he... The tension is that he's going to be released in... Like a month. Like a month. It's very short term. So... It's really... Sutherland wants to break him before then and, like, make him kill someone. Yeah, it's basically this sort of tense situation where the warden is trying to get Stallone to commit more crimes F- and earn more yeah. time. Is his name Frank? Frank, I think. He plays a lot of Franks. He Stallone does. does. so weird. That's an interesting thing. Anyway, so this is... A pretty standard sort of structure for a, you know, prison film. Yeah. You've got the bunch of supporting characters. You've got the... The, the, the young long, guy. The, yeah, you've got the young guy who, you know, is too impetuous for their own good. You've got the old-timer. You've got the long-timer who's been there for a while, knows how things work. You've got kind of the slimy guy who eventually turns out to be not so trustworthy... You've got the corrupt gods. Yeah, then you've got some gods who aren't corrupt. It's a pretty standard list of characters. This movie is dark. Oh, yeah. This movie is grim as hell. It's like, it's not an action film, as you might think with Stallone. It is more just a character drama about this guy just getting the living shit kicked out of him, physically and mentally. As you're just seeing his mental state just degrade before your eyes. Mm. And it's like, there are moments where there's real hope in the movie. Like, him and his friends build this car. And it's this whole thing of they have been able to do something creative with their time, do something that they enjoy. This is something of theirs. This is something of theirs that they can... Like say that they at did. least take some ownership off and say yeah that say that they did, but then that gets taken away and it's like Stallone's character has had all of the wind taken out of him and he just goes off on everyone saying you know what none of this w- was ours what did you think that we were gonna what share the car like you were gonna take it out on Sundays he was gonna take it out on Fridays no this is his car, this is his prison, we belong to him. And as soon as we can accept that fact, that we belong to him, the better it will be. Yeah, that, one it, of the key lines in the film is, they can lock you up physically, they can lock your body up, but they can't lock your mind. Hmm. But it that that ethos really starts to get strained and pushed, Yeah, as the film goes on, as the mental anguish gets worse and worse shall we say yeah and there are some cliched moments in this film like this this montage where they're fixing up the car just goes on for too long it kind of kills a lot of the pace there's a few twists that you kind of see coming if you've seen as many prison movies (laughs) as we have yeah You understand the structure, you understand what happens to these sorts of characters. Yeah, the guards aren't nearly as well characterized as other prison movies. I don't want to compare this film to Shawshank Redemption, because that is unfair. Because Shawshank Redemption is one of the best movies ever made. But they do some of the same stuff in this movie, and it just doesn't work as well. Shawshank is gold standard.
0: This is a side tangent, but I actually think that there's a really good case for a Shawshank Redemption remake. And I think that you do it like they did Boyhood. You film it over 20 years. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bold okay. strategy, Connie. Okay, okay. Let's see if it pays out. Interesting idea, but let's get back to lockup. Donald Sutherland is, is good in this one. Oh, yeah. He's so deliciously evil. He's one of those... He's not the best evil warden in a no. prison film. No, no, that's the warden in Shawshank. But he's up there. His face has so much character. That's mm-hmm. what you can say about Donald Sutherland. Like I, I told Harley that uh, Donald Sutherland has played Jesus before, and Harley didn't believe me. He was like, eh, I don't know. He looks a bit...
0: He looks like the devil. He's He's got a very mysterious-looking face. Like, you, you you look at the guy and you think that, like, there's a lot there's a lot behind the eyes, you know? Mm-hmm.
2: It's like Malcolm McDowell. There's a lot happening there. But anyway, this movie, I really enjoyed it. It has some structural problems, but, you know, it's perfectly fine. And this is one of our dad's favourite prison movies. And he's big on prison movies, so that says a lot. All right, for... Australian Screen this week, we watched The Year My Voice Broke from 1987, directed by John Dwegan. This is a cast who you'll recognize. Right, I'll just go through them. Noah Taylor plays the main character. Noah Taylor being one of those Australian actors you will recognize, but you don't recognize yeah. him headlining stuff. He was most prominently the lead in He Died With a Falafel in His Hands. He also played Locke in in Game of Thrones, which is Ramsey yeah, Bolton's yeah. mate.
0: He was in, um, what's that movie from a few years back with Ethan Hawke and, and Sarah Snook? Predestination. That's really good.
2: Yeah, uh Mr. Robertson in Predestination. Like, Noah Taylor's been in heaps of stuff, heaps of stuff. Also, one of the characters in this is played by Ben Mendelsohn.
0: Yes, National Treasure Ben Mendelsohn.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolute joy to see him on screen whenever he appears.
0: Creepy, vaguely threatening National Treasure Ben (laughs) Mendelsohn.
2: (laughs) He's a perfectly... He's a gentleman! Like, it's sure him talking he is. in interviews... I'm sure about... he
0: is, but I have never seen him in any role where he is not the most intense thing on screen.
2: Yeah. Watch him in interviews talking about Rogue One. He's like a kid at a candy store. He's like, I get to be in a Star Wars movie. Like, the, ah! the Ben Mendelsohn thing that always comes to mind is Dark Knight Rises. It's the, I'm in charge here. Do you feel in charge? <laughs> Just the look at his face there. So this is the story. Oh, of... Bruce Spence is also in this. Yeah, the gyro captain himself from Mad Max. Now this story is set in the n- rural nineteen sixties Australia. A boy watches as his best friend falls in love with a small time criminal, setting off a violent chain of events. That's broad strokes. What this is, but it's not. But what it's the not movie. Quite what this is? It's a coming of age story. It really is. It's the the. Latin, I believe, German term for coming of age story is "bildungsroman," and that's meant to the the use of the German word is meant to emphasize both the sadness and joy, right, of transitioning into adulthood. And In this movie you has both of those conflicting yet complexly intertwined emotions. Absolutely, and. Noah Taylor's incredible in this. He is. And he was 18 when yeah. they were filming it, but he doesn't look 18, he looks much younger no, than that. There were like moments when he looks 18, like yeah. there's a part where he's wearing sunglasses and smoking a cigarette in a leather jacket, and you're like, okay, he looks 18 there, yeah. but there were other points where it's like, no, he looks like 15, 16. Yeah. And he was a short ass back then too. Yeah. Uh, compared to Ben Mendelsohn, who was also eighteen yeah. at the time, who he just looked, he just looks older, looks much older than him. Danny Noah Taylor's character is this sort of he's a sort of sensitive kid, and he's in love with his childhood friend Freya, who's a couple of years older than him. Who's Freya played by? Not a well-known actor, unfortunately, because she's very good in this. Lauren Carmen. She hasn't been in all that much. She was in, most recently, in Red Dog. Right. But not that much stuff. And this is a movie that takes its time. The pace is quite slow, but to a deliberate degree. Yeah. There's conversations about small towns and the stories that people tell each other. There's the idea that a town can be haunted by a single event. And that the gossip that goes around. Yeah and that people could be chased by that their entire lives without knowing yeah. that they were ever even involved, and the way that these people find their connection to it. Ben Mendelsohn is great in this. Absolutely. He, he, in a lot of movies and stories, the character that the love interest is in, is into is usually an arsehole, yeah. a, a, a jerk, and their unhingedness probably... Is a much more violent thing. But Ben Mendelsohn's character in this is... You can tell he's not right.
0: Ben Mendelsohn playing a character who's not right?
2: No, but he's not... He doesn't have good impulse control. He's not evil and not cruel. In fact, he's nothing but nice to a lot of the characters. He's Mm. just... When he gets going, he can't stop. He cannot stop. Uh, And he has this lunatic laugh. yeah. That he does? It is something. It's that is, something else. That is pure acting, because I doubt that Ben Mendelssohn laughs like this. Wait, like, and it just shows you... This movie shows you how talented Noah Taylor and Ben Mendelssohn were yeah. at that at such a young age. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, 18's not that young, but, you know, and it's it, still incredible. Yeah, and it gives you a good taste of, sort of, outback towns in Australia. Specifically of that time, it's... Gorgeous landscape. The location shooting is phenomenal. Yeah. It is possibly one of the most gorgeous movies we've watched for this course. And that's only because we didn't watch the proposition. Yeah, <laughs> but the the way that Duan shoots the yeah landscape is just phenomenal. Yeah, and you can tell he very very much cares about the story he's telling. Yeah, because this he takes it seriously based off of his experiences when he was kid. I'm not entirely sure but I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. Uh, we also watched we put on Shrek 2. Yeah. Just while just cause. things were while people were doing stuff and all that. We, we'll get into the Shrek franchise.
0: Yeah, next year.
2: Yeah. So I'll I'll hold off on saying too much about yeah. Shrek 2, but this is another great mm-hmm. fun movie. And works. and I'll leave it there. Every joke or almost every joke lands. This movie has exceptional comedic timing. Its music, its its needle drops are just incredible. It has the best version of "Holding Out for a Hero," potentially ever. Yeah,
0: it's fantastic.
2: Yeah, you like, have you to can't agree. surpass it. It's just it it takes the song <laughs> to a completely different level with Harry Gregson Williams' orchestrations. Yeah. It is just... The the Shrek movies, particularly 1, 2, and 3, are... And this will be the last thing i say on it until we cover the franchise, are just ones that resonate with our generation, I find. Grew up on it. Yeah, at at the very least, the first two. Yeah, it's formative. Yeah. It's like the first two Ice Age films. Yeah, yeah. We also watched the first episode of Ratchet. Yes,
0: I've heard insane things about this.
2: Which is a... Prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, charting the origin story of the Nurse Mildred Ratchet. Yeah, who's one of the top ten cinematic villains yeah. of all time. I was going into this with never having read nor seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The the closest relationship you have to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the Metallica song Welcome Home Sanitarium. Correct. <laughs> So I'm sitting here watching this intensely stylistic sort of and this gets thrown around a lot, but Hitchcockian mm. sort of show with like smatterings of it's Ryan Murphy. Yeah. So it's gonna be style to the hilt. It feels like just a spin-off to American Horror Story. Yeah, it really does. Like, if you said, hey, this exists in the same world as, like, cult and bloody Asylum, I'd believe I'd you. I'd buy it. I'd believe you. <laughs> but this is... It seems to not so j- much gel with what I've seen in scenes of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's mm. Nest. It's way too overly stylized for that. Which goes into the fact they'll be recreating that story if they get a season four, this is going to Netflix. Ryan Murphy will put the money down. This is on himself. Netflix, so uh, it'll be lucky if it gets three.
0: It's been like the, the the most watched Netflix series in pretty much every country, though. Like, it's been hugely successful. They've already renewed it for season two.
2: It, it's got Tiger King numbers. It,
0: and And Ryan Murphy has that huge overall deal with Netflix that, I mean, he just announced, like, yesterday that he's doing a, a limited series on Jeffrey Dahmer for Netflix.
1: Oh
2: my Ooh. god, oh my god, that's gonna be awesome! He better get the guy he got to play Dahmer in, in Hotel. Evan Peters. No, he should get Evan Peters as Jeffrey Dahmer. That would be good. Uh, anyway, Nurse Ratchet is played in this by Sarah Paulson. The always excellent Sarah Paulson. Who is a phenomenal performer in pretty much anything, but her role in this, like, oozes this really intense focus Mm. and precision of every action. Yeah. And just a thinly veiled contempt for humanity. Yeah. And, like, it's it's an origin story for someone who is just considered one of the biggest... Assholes and all of fiction, but she's but, already terrible. Yeah, she's already <laughs> so far gone. Like she's she manipulates people as if it's the easiest thing in the world to her. Yeah, it's it's like like it's in her nature. Like breathing is secondary. She only breathes so she can manipulate. Yeah, it's it is fascinating. We only watched the first episode, but I am fascinated to continue. Also, fantastic secondary cast, like Corey Stahl, as a character who I didn't get the name of, but has a fantastic uh, scene. With the Sarah Governor also. of California is played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Yes. He is always fun to see. Yeah. Especially with the way he says lines. Yeah. His line reads have to be some of my favorite, mm. especially as Kingpin. <laughs> yeah. And you've also got Finn Wittrock as... A serial... Uh, is he a serial killer? Or would you call him a spree killer? That uh, would be a spree killing. Yeah. He murders he, a bunch of priests. He murdered a house full of priests. That's and the Finn, opening scene for the yeah. show. Finn Rock is always fun to see on screen. It's and, and the moment we magnetic. saw... We were watching it with our sister, who we have watched all of American Horror Story with, and the moment we saw sort of the outline of his chin, we were like, yep, that's Finn Rock. We won't recognize that chisel jawline anywhere. (laughs) Like, he's. And Nyla was like, yeah, he he even walks like Finn Whitrock, Mm. so that's him. The music is also incredible. It's very Bernard Herrmann inspired. To the point where some of the tracks are lifted from Herrmann's scores. Yeah, there's one shot as well that almost perfectly mirrors one of the coastal road driving shots from the birds. Yes. And it's and I'm such sure a, you know the one. It's such a great choice for it something is. like this because adding style to it just gives it that extra oomph. It's a great melding of both Murphy's style and Hitchcock's style. It it really does feel also very like in the in the episode they say, "Oh, we've converted the old wine cellar in this hospital into a, a makeshift maximum security wing for this." It looks know, like something out of Shutter <laughs> Island, and. The moment they went down to this wine cellar, I'm like, this wine cellar is massive, it's gorgeous. The lighting in there, the the aesthetic is just mm. It's such a visually pleasing show. It if is. you love precision. Lots of use of colour. Mm. Anyway, so now we're going to get into our small segment, Save Me From Smallville, where we talk about the scariest shit we see in the Superman origin story, Smallville. We watched a bunch of episodes since we last recorded, but not that much scary stuff. Until last night. Season 2, episode 19. It starts with the opening scene is three belligerent college students. Frat bros. Frat bros attempt to assault Lana in her coffee shop is there's a possible implied sexual angle to the assault yeah these past episodes also is an was an episode called rosetta which featured featured the late great christopher reeves as dr virgil swan this isn't scary but this isn't scary but we thought we might mention it it's so good to see christopher reeves there it's almost the passing of the torch. Because mm. in this scene where we have Christopher Reeves, he introduces Clark to the idea of Krypton. This is the first time when the you know, words Krypton, Kryptonite, Kalel are used. And it it even takes music from the Williams score. Yeah, underneath the score underneath in the music it's the song Planet Krypton. From the original Superman movie, and it's just so moving. It's one of my favourite leitmotifs in any film, because it captures the grandeur and the utter waste that was Krypton's fate. Yeah. And it it was just really good seeing him there. Yeah. Especially, this is post-accident. Yeah. It's a real passing of the torch. Yeah. And it it looked like it was really significant for him, too. So now we're going to get a listen to the trailer for Prince Prince of, of Egypt. Egypt.
1: Hush now, my baby. Be still love, don't cry. Sleep as you're rocked by the stream. Rescued from a river. We will show Pharaoh your new baby brother, Moses. (laughs) Second born, second place. Not for long. Raised by royalty. You are not a prince of Egypt. What did you say? Everything I am is a lie. You are our son. I can't stay here any longer. Moses, please. Goodbye, brother. The truth gave him the courage to do the impossible. Abandon this futile mission, Moses. Dreamworks Pictures presents A Story for Our Time. Look at your life through heaven's eyes. A celebration of the human spirit.
0: That was a theatrical trailer for Prince of Egypt. It is an animated family musical directed by Brenda Chapman, Steve Hickner, and Simon Wells. It is based on the Bible by God. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's a good... Yeah, okay. It's set in ancient Egypt and it tells the biblical story of Moses. He is a Hebrew slave. All of all of the Hebrew slaves are working under the despotic rulership of the Pharaoh at the time, and the numbers are getting a bit too much for the Pharaoh to control, so he orders the deaths of a whole bunch of the Hebrew children. Moses is one of them, but his family put him in a wicker basket and send him down the river. And he is found by the queen of Egypt, and he is raised as part of the pharaoh's family. Raised to become a grown man who is voiced by Val Kilmer. And he is raised alongside the future pharaoh, Ramesses II, played by Rafe Fiennes. And they grow up as brothers. But then, when he is an adult, he discovers the truth of his heritage, meets God, and becomes God's instrument in helping the slaves of Egypt become free. So why don't we all start off by going around and, and each saying what we thought of the Prince of Egypt? Why don't you start us off, Sean?
2: This has always been a movie that has had a great emotional impact on me. As someone who is agnostic, I don't really can, I don't collect to the more religious aspect of it. I, it's really the human part of it to me. And this film has a lot of really good messages to them for both a religious and secular audience. Like, in a song, like, Through Heaven's Eyes, the meaning works even removed from a faith system. It's about looking at your life and the things you've done as part of the bigger picture, as seeing what you can do to help as many people as possible. And... Yeah, I've always loved this film. It's one of those movies that we would always watch, because everything about it is just perfect. The score by Hans Zimmer and the songs by Stephen Schwartz. The animation is gorgeous. The storytelling is fantastic. The voice acting voice acting is brilliant with some very famous faces. Not appearing, but but you can hear them. And, yeah, it. this film features one of my favourite pieces of music ever. So but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, yeah. I adore this film. Uh, like John mentioned, I am not religious. So, for the majority of my life, I've come at this film from a secular mindset. And it's still incredibly moving and incredibly powerful. Because... At the end of the day, it's a story about finding who you are and taking responsibility. Because the movie doesn't... The story doesn't forgive Moses for his ignorance. Yeah. And while it's not directly his fault that he didn't know, he still treated the slaves like shit. Yeah. And it this is a journey of Moses taking responsibility, not only for who he is, but what he's responsible for. Yeah. And what he did. Um, And what he does. And what he does, and what his family did. Because at the end of the day, although Moses was adopted, the Egyptian monarchy was still his family. And so there's still that responsibility there. It's also about fighting against slavery, and just the power of faith. Yeah. Be that in a god, or be that in yourself, that sort of thing. The animation is gorgeous. It's got this mix of 2D animation and some... 3D computer-generated stuff that is probably one of the most well-done mixes of the two. Yeah. There's some real standout showcase scenes for the CG. It'll be hard to pick a favourite. But we'll get to that. The music and songs are incredible.
0: I think this is maybe the best non-Disney animated musical ever made. I think it's pretty extraordinary and soulful, I think. It's a really ambitious and intelligent children's film of, of the type that DreamWorks would quickly stop making. Uh, <laughs> but I think maybe we should we should talk a little bit about the biblical aspect to start off with. It seems like kind of an interesting pick for a children's film. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is one of the, the head honchos at DreamWorks when it got off the ground, he had worked for Disney for many years and he'd always apparently been trying to get Disney to make a Moses story that Disney was like, nope, we're not touching anything religious. And once he, Jeffrey Katzenberg had an infamous falling out with Disney in the 90s. They even wrote a book about it. <laughs> but once he he left Disney and formed DreamWorks with a few other people, including Steven Spielberg, he that was one of the first things that he greenlit was Prince of Egypt. And it's interesting to see both what they keep in from the biblical stuff and also the compromises that they make because they keep in some pretty full-on stuff for a children's film. You know, the slaughter of all of the the children by the pharaoh at the beginning, the Passover, the first Passover, where all the firstborn of Egypt are killed by God, in the end where all of the soldiers are washed away by by the water there's some pretty full-on stuff moses kills a guy in the first half hour we're not getting we are getting a watered down version of the biblical story but we're not getting getting it nearly as watered down as you might be forgiven for expecting
2: yeah it's not sanitized as much as you would think for a kid's movie it's it still has some incredibly dark moments like the movie starts off with the murder of of hundreds of children. You don't see it explicitly, but it's there. You see the horror happen.
0: And that opening song, Deliver Us, like that's a statement of intent. Like the second that that starts off with that heavy, deep male choir doing the the extremely dramatic, powerful song about slavery and about their experiences as slaves... Like, that's the opening number to a children's world.
1: Faster! With the stick of the width on my shoulder With the salt of my sweat on my brow
2: found deliver us to be extremely powerful a song it's one of the darker songs in the show but there is nothing like listening to it in hebrew i i managed to find a video online of deliver us the hebrew translation of it it is probably the most powerful version of the song because that's the it really hits the reality of it it just really gets there particularly at the end uh, of the song after all the stuff in the nile happened and it's moses's big sister older sister and she has that her own private prayer bit at the end <laughs> crushing to hear in the original Hebrew you get a taste of it in the in all the other versions of the song with the mother but it's really affecting and really powerful to hear it all in Hebrew and the song deliver us with a brilliant performance by vocalist Ofra Haza is just her voice is incredible
0: she did it in a lot of different languages she learned the ones that she didn't know phonetically and performed it in a lot of different languages, but that that moment where the, she's sort of harmonizing as the choir comes back in is really powerful. It's probably worth noting just at the at the start the the way that they have tried to adapt the narrative is always pretty interesting with the Moses story because they tie it to a real pharaoh. They tie it to Ramesses II. the second. The pharaoh is never identified by name in the biblical story but here is Ramesses II which puts this at somewhere between 1213 and 1279 BC it's generally agreed upon by historians that Moses was not a real person that this is a legend rather than history even if you discount all of the the biblical stuff who those not of faith will will probably not sign on to the whole parting of the red sea thing but even if you just look at the text of the story as being this guy that this prophet that came and and helped free these these slaves from the pharaoh it's generally agreed that this is not a historical event it is is in fact a legend but there are also there could have been different people that occupied different parts of the story so it's it's interesting in the way that the story has been put together for the movie to give, it a, to give it a narrative and to give it more of a dramatic structure. For instance, in the biblical story, he's not adopted by the pharaoh. He's adopted by the pharaoh's daughter. And I'm pretty sure that the pharaoh who, whose daughter it is is the same pharaoh that he's up against. Like the Ramesses growing up with a brother thing is not part of it.
2: The change is to make it more compelling.
0: But from the very beginning with this song, you get the statement that this is going to be a serious film that treats this topic seriously and is is not trying to pull its punches as a children's entertainment, which is interesting. I
2: think that's what you can say about a lot of early Dreamworks. They had some really adult shit.
0: Ants.
1: Ants is
2: hardcore, dude! The, the battle scene at Ants is grim.
0: Don't let... Yeah, but let's not compare Ants to Prince of Egypt.
2: <laughs> okay, let's put it I'm this not way. comparing it, it to Prince of Egypt. A East. lot of early DreamWorks wasn't... It wasn't explicitly as just As chill as Disney. Like, you never say that A Bug's Life is more intense than Ants. I
0: don't know. Have you seen A Bug's Life recently? You seen the stuff that the Kevin Spacey general character does in that movie?
2: Have you seen the stuff that the Woody Allen bug gets up to?
0: Yeah, but it's it's sort of... I suppose I'm thinking in terms of tone as well.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about in terms of tone. The entire battle sequence is horrific. His friend has his head ripped off.
1: Oh, and like point. you it's hear the real, guy's
2: final words. It's a real Starship Trooper shit. It's grim. But less funny. But anyway, anyway, this isn't a review of ants, for God's sake. We'll get to that.
0: But this does this does sort of seem when you when you see the initial run of DreamWorks products, you're seeing stuff like The Prince of Egypt, you're seeing stuff like The Road to El Dorado, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. And then you get Shrek.
2: Okay, from Sinbad on, it's a little less
0: serious. <laughs> yeah. Then you get Shrek and Shrek came out before Spirit and Sinbad, but those were already in production beforehand. But Shrek is like the big breakout where it makes $484 million, and it's the very comedic... I mean, it's a great movie, but it's the very comedic one. It has a lot of pop culture references. It's more sort of lighthearted.
2: Appropriately for children?
0: Well, not even that. It's, it's more sort of lighthearted than what it's been doing, but it's more crude and hip than disney or pixar
2: it it appeals to adults more
0: yeah it's got more of an edge to it and quickly after that we settle into the the cg animated run of you know shark Tale and madagascar over the hedge flushed away b movie i mean the real and it's not really until i think how to train your dragon that they go back to the 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 sort of emotional core that they were exploring in in the first run of things
2: well the first ice age
0: the first that's not them
2: that's not oh right yep. Yeah. sorry my mistake i
0: will say though that wallace and gromit the curse of the were rabbit is a fantastic movie
2: 100 percent. easy yeah easy i love wallace and gromit and you best believe we're covering that
0: it's a little unfortunate that they st- they started off with such high-minded ideas and now they're doing trolls and boss baby like it's kind of unfortunate and it's kind of it's in, it's interesting to see the timeline of all of this because of course Jeffrey Katzenberg leaves Disney where he oversaw a whole bunch of the Disney renaissance stuff he leaves Disney very acrimoniously with a very public split and starts his own animation company and almost immediately they start to sort of eat Disney's lunch with stuff like shrek And stuff like Madagascar and and Disney after the Renaissance enters this fallow period in the early 2000s. But then it gets reversed again when DreamWorks starts to really starts to falter after Shrek and Madagascar run their course and they get, you know stuck with increasingly unsuccessful movies like Monsters versus Aliens or Megamind and these are not unsuccessful movies in the sense that they didn't make money but they are unsuccessful in the sense that Disney starts to make a lot more money than those movies yeah
2: and it's not even that they're bad movies like Megamind's a good movie they just don't have the same retention exactly. as the Disney stuff coming out in that period
0: Disney Disney fully acquires Pixar, Pixar gets tapped in, Disney gets its second win with like Tangled and Frozen and that stuff. And DreamWorks just peters out. DreamWorks ends up having some real financial problems as the twenty first century goes on to the point where they don't distribute their movies anymore. They have partnerships with other studios to distribute them. They they stopped distributing their movies. The last movie that they themselves distributed, animation-wise, was Madagascar. They had some real financial problems where they ha- ended up having to partner with Paramount for a while. Then they partnered with 20th Century Fox for a few years. Then after Fox got bought, started being bought by Disney, they went to Universal. Like, they they didn't, they weren't able to maintain that speed. It, it's really interesting. There's a pair of books. There is a book called Disney War which is about all of the political machinations going on in Disney in that period. It's it's very extraordinarily acrimonious. The stuff that was going on with Michael Eisner at the time, the, the power plays that was going on with him and the board, Jeffrey Katzenberg sort of wanting to assume a certain role, but not getting it and sort of leaving in a huff. Then there's another book called The Men Who Would Be Kings about the rise and fall of DreamWorks. And it's this really fascinating chapter of modern animation history that I would love to see a documentary or a TV miniseries done of, but I figure that the House of Mouse would clamp down on that mm. pretty damn mm. quick.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Disney snipers. Because are... there are particular people who you'd have to show. I feel like Lasseter would have to be a character in that.
0: It's It's this pretty incredible, like, full-on, like, succession kind of story of what was going on with Disney in the 90s.
2: Totally. But back onto Prince of Egypt, let's have a chat about some of the actors.
0: Let me just say, first off, and and this is probably urban legend, but infamously you had Ants and A Bug's Life competing in the same year. And it is urban legend that the very last meeting that Jeffrey Katzenberg attended as a Disney executive was the first pitch for A Bug's Life. So, (laughs) yeah, there's... It like right, right from the start, it was sort of a almost a direct repudiation to Disney.
2: Yeah, and now Katzenberg is doing Quibi.
0: Yep. Oh, he's had a lot of really fun ideas. If you look at at uh, the course of his career, like he's on the one hand a very intelligent person. Who has overseen some of the most successful movies of recent years, both creatively and financially? But then, on the other on the other hand, you also hear about all of the the ideas that he had that didn't come to fruition, either because he couldn't accomplish them or because people around him talked him down. And you're just like, this guy's got a real hit or miss track record. Oh like yeah for for every for every Prince of Egypt, there is a Quibi. <laughs> like it's a real erratic track record.
2: Mm. And I think the saddest thing about it is, I tried Quibi uh, on the free trial because it's something I could watch on my phone, just you know, in between classes and everything. But it didn't. None of the stuff on there gelled with me, so I didn't pay the subscription any further. I deleted off, deleted it off my phone. But I've still got an account with Quibi. Apparently, I still get emails from them.
0: Where are you? Please come back. We need you.
2: <laughs> Legitimately, I got an email, and it was them doing a whole press thing about you know Halloween shows and everything and all the spooky stuff, and they literally said it. Literally said the words, "You ghosted us, so now we're haunting you." <laughs> <laughs> That's not
0: threatening at all.
2: It's like I, sh- I, I dread the time whenever I receive an email starting with that. Yeah, I read that, and I'm like, "Excuse
0: me!" But like the moment they announced it, from the very beginning, and they're like, "Oh, and you can only watch it on your phone, and you can turn it. wide you can turn it vertical or, or horizontal, and it, it changes the perspective. And oh, and we're gonna, and they're gonna be like little bite-sized episodes that are gonna be part of the this whole overarching story that's basically cutting a movie almost into into yeah. ten minute chunks." and we're going to charge these people to have a subscription because people like watching YouTube. And I'm just like, this is from the very first time I heard it, I'm like, this is going to fail and fail badly. And yeah. I don't understand how I, someone with no business experience, just, just you know a fan watching the industry, can hear that from like day one, like the first time I ever hear it, it's business model mentioned. And instantly mm. I'm just like, yeah, that's not going to work. And I'm right, but all of these people who signed on to this, who put millions upon millions of dollars into it, all of these...
2: I mean, Katzenberg, a man who's been in the industry forever.
0: All of these incredibly talented, creative people come on board. Steven Spielberg is on board. All of these these actors and filmmakers and showrunners come in. All these studios put hundreds of millions of dollars investment into it. He raises all of this capital. I don't understand how all of these people didn't see this coming, when I think pretty much everyone else did.
2: It's like, yeah, it's a neat concept as a novelty, the idea that you could be watching a show in landscape and then go to portrait. I tried it. It's pretty neat. But all that it is, is you're just getting the centre of the frame. You're just getting the people's faces. Like, And congratulations
0: for me as someone who who might be who might watch some of these shows who who could be convinced to watch a show like the most dangerous game with, yeah. with you know Christoph Waltz and everything it immediately turns me off because i have to watch it on my phone i'm not watching anything on my phone that's not how i like film and television too much to ever watch it on my phone and you're telling me also that 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 this whole flipping of the screen thing that's a big turn off to me because it means that there's no vision for this yeah. there's no filmmaking vision yeah it's got to it's got to fulfill these two masters so
2: oh i watched the first episode of that dangerous game thing it looked cheap as hell because of that like there was nothing happening on there was nothing happening on the sides of the you know frame there was nothing happening but the stuff in the middle and that's why
0: I did hear some rumblings from some journalists on a podcast months ago that they're apparently looking into turning most dangerous games specifically into a movie because it didn't do as well on Quibi. But I, I, I do think that this is going to be a tangency episode because there's a lot of really interesting history that's going on at the time, both in terms of DreamWorks and in terms of the, the animation And I do think it's worth pointing out that Katzenberg is the Quibi guy.
2: (laughs) Do you reckon that's going to be on his tombstone? It's going to be in the tags of this episode, I'm sure. Do do you reckon it's going to be on his crypt? Like, knock three times to summon the ghost of Quibi guy.
0: But it's like, Katzenberg is the Quibi guy, and he's the Dreamworks guy. And he's the guy that oversaw stuff like The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. And... It's it's a fascinating career trajectory for them. You you mentioned the the acting, Harley, and this is a stacked cast. This is one of the things that DreamWorks immediately did that changed the trajectory of, of animation that like Disney ended up coming onto as well, where instead of casting voice actors, which Disney did, they would have some famous people. You get Angela Lansbury in there to voice a teapot every now and again. Yeah. But For the most part, they cast voice actors, whereas right from the word go, DreamWorks was was all about stunt casting. And in this movie, you get so many famous people. You get Sandra Bullock, Steve Martin, Michelle Pfeiffer, Rafe Fiennes, Val Kilmer, Jeff Goldblum, Helen Mirren, Patrick Stewart, Martin Short, Danny Glover. Uh, According to IMDb, Mel Brooks has an uncredited cameo. I mean, from the very beginning, they've got this huge array of of all-star talent that they bring in like ants was that as well from from the very start i mean woody allen uh is playing an ant version of himself basically albeit much less allegedly creepy but even in that like like they they coaxed all of these famous people in they coaxed in sharon stone and sylvester stallone and jennifer lopez christopher walk and gene hackman dan Aykroyd, and bancroft danny glover again
2: it's incredible the star power dreamworks had and i mean that stretched on to even shrek and the sequels for like shrek 2 you've got mike myers cameron diaz rupert everett john cleese and it's just incredible
0: i mean they they still get it you look at i mean we've we've taken some i've taken some shots at boss baby <laughs> over the course of this podcast already, but even that's like Alec Baldwin, Steve Buscemi, Jimmy Kimmel, Lisa Kudrow, Toby Maguire. i mean, in-
2: I don't know. Trolls, St- St- you've got Timberlake. Sorry, dude, you're going to have to put an asterisk next to Buscemi's name. Like, he's in a lot... He's been in a lot of great things. I love Buscemi, but he's been in some stinkers.
0: If we're holding up Dan Aykroyd as stunt casting, then Steve Buscemi certainly qualifies.
2: Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Dan Aykroyd was in one of the worst movies I've ever seen, so that's fair. Anyway, so and not only are these castings very stunty, but they're also really good performances.
0: They are. I mean, I I got to the, I I I couldn't remember who played the queen when I watched it this time. I got to the end of it and I saw the credits. And I was like, wait, Helen Mirren was in this. That was Helen Mirren. It's you can't tell. It's it's good. It's good performances. It. it it's not just that they've cast these people for their name value. They have cast these people because they're going to do good things with the characters that they've been assigned.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think Ralph Fiennes is a perfect choice for Ramses because he's got...
0: Rafe, I believe his 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 n- name is pronounced.
2: Rafe. Rafe. What? Yeah. Rafe Fiennes, Voldemort, that that Nazi from Schindler's List, whatever you want to call him. Like, he's got a fantastic way of playing both... Good guy Ramses, or slightly less shitty Ramses, and then Pharaoh evil Ramsey. like Pharaoh Ramses. And he does it so well. Him and Val Kilmer have such chemistry with the lines that they say. Like in the scenes where they're being just brothers. Yeah. It's it's brilliant. And even when they become mortal enemies, there's that scene where it's basically them replaying that scene from the beginning where it's they're talking about how they played the prank on the... Priests. Priests. Changing the heads on the statues of the gods. Changing the heads on the statues. And this level of, I guess, warmth kind of cracks the wall between them, almost. Before the kid shows up, obviously. And ruins it. Yeah. But the talent there in being able to craft a moment like that... It's a testament, not necessarily to the script writing, but to the actors for pulling that off. Because by this point, Moses has already called down the plagues. The, The Passover hasn't happened yet, or what I like to call the creeping death as a reference to Metallica. But, you know, plagues of frogs, the Nile turning to blood, the plague of darkness, locusts, all of that stuff has happened. But there's still this slight yeah. moment where they're brothers again mm. and that's a credit to those actors
0: well it it gives it an emotional in i mean yeah. it, it gives a more personalized story for this grand biblical epic exactly. to latch in upon which is is interesting as a choice for the adaptation considering again this is a children's movie i think that's smart that it gives moses a personal cost an emotional yes. cost to the things that he has to give up. He has to give up his brother, who he does love, yeah. despite everything. And it's it, it's a it's a smart bit of messing with the text because it 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 creates a more interesting dynamic, and it allows for a more complicated emotional arena for the movie to play in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Like, you just think about all the kids watching into the audience, and they've all had fights with their siblings, but probably very few of them have, like, really gone to bat with their grandparents.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No one's brought down... no one's brought some frogs and locusts into the situation. Hold on, no, I think think that's a generalisation that you okay, can't make. I Frogs th- and locusts would have 100% been in a family squabble at some point. Just a plague of darkness and the killing of the firstborn, probably not. <laughs> it escalates. Yeah, like, I'm not going to go out to the Brisbane River and turn it into blood just because we disagree about something. But I may put a frog in your room.
0: You, you get what I mean. That's a dynamic that children would understand. So exactly, exactly. by giving it to Moses in this movie, it <coughs> makes... What could be a very impassable sort of mature character arc more accessible for kids?
2: Yeah, yeah, and it works. and it works because they see that stuff early. Exactly. The the second scene we get is the chariot race, and you know that whole thing is those. That's just two brotherly joking. joy. Yeah, I watching find... that just makes me happy. And watching it with Harley, I'm like, yeah, yeah. We were like this when we play like games and shit. Like there were times that's when us were, playing Mario Kart. That's us playing Mario Kart. That's that's us playing Mario Party. That's us in the backyard beating each other with sticks. <laughs> but it's that they do so much to ingratiate you, you as an audience member, into their relationship that when you see them break apart, it is awful. Yeah, it's. It... Especially because Ramses has no idea what's going on when Moses is leaving. Yeah. And so all Ramses can say Ramesses. is... Ramesses. It's not Sorry. the Neighbours Street. <laughs> Ramsey Street. <laughs> Ramesses Street. Oh, what would happen to Neighbours if they got the flags?
0: Uh, I did just be another day on Ramsey Street, I think.
2: Poor Susan. <laughs> Poor, Poor Susan. Susan. She ends up finding a frog in her tea. You
1: have spoiled
2: my life. You have
1: destroyed my happiness!
2: Yeah. Anyway, so, and all Ramesses can say is, please. Yeah.
1: And, and think like, about it this
2: way. like and Ramesses has been built up to believe that he's going to be the next Pharaoh, the morning and evening star, the guy who can decide anything in the he world. He can literally, he literally says... But he can't says, stop his brother yeah, from leaving. Yeah, he literally says, I can make it, make it so that no one thinks you killed that guy, even though everyone saw you kill that guy. I can make that happen because I'm Prince Regent, but he can't get his brother to stay, and he doesn't know why.
0: And it's all, it's all of the weight that has been put on him by his father as well, where we get that, that really one of only two scenes with Patrick Stewart in the movie, where he's like, all, all of this that we've got here, all of this history and this grandeur that we've got in Egypt, all it takes is a weak link in the chain and you get that echo later on where Ramses yells I will not be the weak link. So he he's got this sort of like these daddy issues that he's sort of he's trying to satisfy his father, he's trying to make his father proud. Yeah
2: and there's that whole thing like Moses goes to bat for him relentlessly before he leaves. Like he's the one who suggests giving Ramses more responsibilities. And you hear later in, in that scene that I was talking about before, how Ram- Ramesses says, whenever I got in trouble, you were always there to get me out of it.
1: This place. So many memories. I remember the time you switched the heads of the gods of the Temple of Ra. If I recall correctly, you were there switching heads right along with me. No, it was you. I didn't do that. Oh, yes, you did. You put the hippo on the crocodile and the crocodile on, on the, the falcon. Yes. And the priest thought it was a horrible omen and fasted for two months. Father was furious. You were always getting me into trouble. But then. <laughs> you were always there to. get me out of trouble again.
2: And that adds another dimension into the. into Ramesses losing Moses, because not only does Moses leave when Ramesses says, no, don't do it, he also doesn't understand why, and it's also a betrayal because Moses was always there for him. So it's it's it it's attacking him from three different directions
0: and it's no fucking wonder that he gets so pissed off. And it's never explicitly stated in the movie, but it is there that you have the you have the whole idea of God being the father, right? So you have the the two children their father's pitching them against each other, right? You you have yeah. Ramesses being you know, influenced by the desires and the the instructions of his father, and you have Moses being influenced by the instructions of his father. It's, there is a parallel, there's a, a real symmetry to a lot of yeah. what's going on there.
2: Yeah, and one of the scenes I always found really hard to watch is when Moses kills that guy, which is different to how it is in the original story. Yeah. Moses
0: doesn't accidentally kill him in the in the the original story. He he intends to do it, and then he tries to hide the body afterwards.
2: Which, hey, put that in a DreamWorks movie, Katzenberg, you coward!
0: Yeah, like this is this is one of the things is that this being a story from thousands of years ago, there are some very problematic elements that have been excised.
2: Oh no shit! Like they did such a good job at having Moses be someone who you can get behind and those changes are it on really purpose. it really softens him bringing in the plagues oh yeah. yeah that that's why you've got people saying old testament blood and fire i'm gonna go old testament on this person
0: yeah that it, there's a real harshness to a lot of the old testament stuff I, I went to Catholic school and I remember in primary school, like, you know, we, we would do Bible study and reading the different uh, sort of every, every page of the Old Testament has something that's like, mm, like slaves be obedient to your masters, you know, women be obedient to your husbands, things like that. And I remember asking my, my teacher about these things. And it's just like, she said to me, oh, it's the Old Testament. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no one pays attention. Like we were told this at this Catholic school in in Bible studies, just like yeah, we we pay more attention to the second part than the than the first, you know, yeah,
2: yeah. But, but even but then, at the end not. of the Bible, at the end of the Bible, you've got Revelations, which is like the greatest hits of the Old Testament, which is why it's my favorite part of the Bible. It, it it's it's like it's like Old Testament with a lot of the writing style and a lot of the flair of the New Testament, mm. and yeah. I love how heavy metal it is.
0: Like like God is a lot more fire and brimstone in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. And you see that with stuff like like the flood, the, yeah. the Noah's Ark flooding. You see that here with the Passover, the killing of all of the firstborn children of Egypt. A lot of this is allegory, a lot of this is is metaphor and and all of these these old stories in the Bible are also about moralism and about you know punishment there is the eye for the eye element there is the the symmetry between the Hebrew children being killed and the Egyptian children yeah. being killed there's a, there's a lot of that i mean new testament god very different that's where we get all of the the, the current acceptance of you know, you know peace forgiveness love thy neighbor kind of thing
2: when jesus cracks onto the scene he mellows
0: fatherhood really mellowed him out
2: Oh it yeah, hundred really percent. Really Even though I don't know, the killing the firstborn something, still pretty hardcore. That like, was that never... was
0: pre-Jesus. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, like... yeah. He he never lost it. No, no, I mean the letting Jesus die thing. It's nah. like he never he never lost his edge, but he did soften. He and Absolutely. I think that's a really I think interesting like, character arc. I think looking at God's character arc <laughs> in the Bible is fascinating. Because the Bible is this very long string of books. It's 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 an extended universe, my dudes. It's comic book storytelling. It's comic book storytelling. Multiple different artists, multiple different writers, all telling one... Interconnected story, Interconnected all in the same Interconnected story canon. with arcs. So, that's the easiest comparison I can make. Or at least the version of the King James Bible. Yeah. Obviously, if you go back years and years to before then you're going to get permutation after permutation. It's it's all relative to the version of the Bible you read and the kind of faith system you ascribe to. Uh. And the interesting thing about this movie is that they had people from a variety of different faith systems working on it. Yeah, consulted. They, they consulted so many different people. They consulted Muslims. They consulted jewish people they consulted christians they consulted biblical scholars they consulted secular biblical scholars theologists and it it's all used to create a universal version of that story
0: even when you get to the voice of god when the burning bush comes up it's the whole cast talking val Kilmer is the loudest because they needed one voice to sort of stand out from the others. But if you hear in the background, it's it's all of the cast talking together, reading the lines.
2: Yeah, because why wouldn't God's voice come to you as your voice and the voice of the people you know?
0: But but there's also like the whole idea of the, the universality of God that that this is it, it isn't that faith isn't something that belongs to anyone. they they're being very very careful also in the making of it that they don't want to offend anyone they tr- yeah they're trying to be really inclusive yeah.
2: Mm. yeah also it's a great effect too yeah and that that goes a long way uh but it still ended up banned in some countries the the Maldives, Egypt itself but that is for not because it was offensive yeah. because it depicted Moses who is a prophet in the muslim faith yeah and their rules against depictions it's of the same prophets. way that like Passion of the Christ got bad because Jesus is a prophet in Islam.
0: Wasn't wasn't there something else in Passion of the Christ that, that that really was controversial? Some choice that they made?
2: Yeah, a lot of shit.
0: Yeah. I'm just saying it. that might not be the only reason that Passion of the Christ was bad. No. Oh,
2: obviously, I was just using Passion, Passion of, of the Christ as an example of something that has Jesus in it. Yeah. But yes, there were probably a multitude of other Mel Gibson-y type of reasons why. Least of which Satan looking like Obama, but that's the whole thing.
0: That was before Obama was president. You're thinking of the History Channel series, oh, The Bible. Oh,
2: right, sorry, yeah. my mistake. Yeah. The devil in uh, Passion of the Christ was Albino. Weren't he? Yikes! Yeah. But anyway, still looked creepy. That's a yikes movie, just in general. Let's talk a bit more about the Burning Bush scene itself. The music is just gorgeous. There is my favorite thing Hans Zimmer has ever done and probably ever will do it. Those chords you hear when he first goes in there and sees the bush. It hits me really hard. It's my second favorite piece of music ever, ever. It's if it just feels like it sounds like what heaven would sound like. It feels right. It feels beautiful
0: my my favorite part of the instrumental score is is almost a a reprise of that scene is later on when they're cornered by the the pharaoh's men and he steps into the the red sea and you hear god say again with this staff you shall do my wonders parting yeah which is an extraordinary effect like that's an extraordinary visual effect and it's so eerie and and striking just visually as they're walking through and and you can see like the the flashes and there's all of the sea life illuminated by the lightning
2: there's that big whale shark who's like "Mm, i used to be able to go through here uh (laughs) this is annoying but i see that you little people are probably running away from something so i'll give you a pass on this one
0: do you think, like, if that was real, that like a fish would just swim horizontally out of the water and just go flopping down onto the ground or something?
2: If he picks so, up enough speed, he'll, he'll just, just zoom through. He'll he'll. Zoom th- <laughs> he'll, he'll if, if, I, I can imagine an Evel evil Knievel fish just being like, "My time, ch- my time to shine." Uh, I'm gonna do some sick tricks. I've jumped the Suez. I've I've even jumped into the Amazon. I'm going to do this. I'm going to bridge this gap. And then he does it and he's like, fuck yeah, dude. Anyway, my favorite moment from the burning bush scene is after God gets angry at Moses and then he just almost sighs and realized that he was scared, got, that he was scaring Moses and then talks to him really gently. Yeah. that That always like emotionally got me. Because that's such a human response. Yeah. To having had just lost your temper. Because he's... Because think about it. Like, using the idea that you were saying Lawson, God just realized that he's yelled at his son. Yeah. He's yelled at one of his children. And he's like, he understands that this isn't... That's not going to work. And yelled at him for being scared. Yeah.
1: But I was their enemy. I was the Prince of Egypt, the son of the man who slaughtered their children. You've you've chosen the wrong messenger. How how can I even speak to these people? Who made man's power? Who made the deaf, the mute, the seeing, or the blind? Did not I? Now go. of Egypt but Pharaoh will not listen so I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders
2: it's just like it just gives me chills Mm. every time beautifully animated as well and just how the fire doesn't burn yeah it's just So chilling. But the scene that creeps me out the most, this most recent viewing, was the Passover. There's almost no score. There's a little bit here and there, but that's what I mean by almost. It's it's ultimately the sound of the wind. Yeah. And the breath, the stolen exhale.
0: It's 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 rough. And again, the. There's a children's movie, like, we're sitting here watching all of these kids die in this children's movie. It's it's
2: hard to look at. Yeah, the way it starts is, like, there's almost this tear in space that the white energy comes out of. Yeah, It's almost, it's almost like, eerily cosmic in that moment, and then it just flies through all of Egypt. Yeah. And you gotta imagine, if I was an Egyptian at that time... Seeing the Hebrews painting the blood on all their doors, I'd be like, seeing that they they haven't been affected by the plagues. Probably gonna get. They know a something's shot. up. <laughs> they know something's up. I'm gonna uh... just gonna make sure. Hey yo, uh, dude, give me a goat. <laughs> I think we should. I think we should just just to be on the safe just side. Be on the safe side, can't hurt to try. <laughs> the plagues is intense. Such a, a song. fantastic song as well. Holy shit!
0: It's it's a really extraordinary dramatic song the way that it has that sort of like whispering in the background as as the frogs start coming up the steps and and then you you get into that very dramatic very biblical chanting that that just starts pulsing through the whole thing as the chorus into your house, into
1: your bed, into your streets, into your streets, into your drink, into your bread, upon your cattle, on your sheep, upon your absent, in into your dreams, into your state, until you break, until you hear. I send the sword, I send the sword,
2: the Yeah, um, I think my favorite part of it is. I'll send the locusts on the wind, such as the world has never seen, on every leaf, on every stalk until there's nothing left of green. And the way that the flutes are trilling and just arpeggiating, it sounds like a swarm of bugs. And that's scary as hell. Did you listen to that version from the musical that I sent you? I did.
0: Yeah. There's there's the musical stuff I've listened to a bit of. I maybe I'm just a traditionalist, I I really don't like any changes to play the plagues, but
2: yeah, I I I like the tra- I like the transition from uh you're playing with the big boys now and how it gets overpowered by the start of the plagues, sort of like, and God I like asserting the asserting re- his power. I, I like the reprise of the Queen's all I ever wanted bit it, in the musical because it's, it's the we gave you a home, my son. Yeah, not we'll just me, but many. I love, love you for you was strong. strong, now you've come home. But to the ones who love you, you do us all so wrong. And it breaks my heart to ask you, did, did you hate us all along? along? When I first heard that, I was like, Oh, Jesus, and that's coming from his mum.
0: Even in the middle of this big, dramatic, you know, choir chanting kind of song, it, it brings it back down to the personal. It brings yeah. it back down to the relationship. We get in the middle of this, this... S- these scenes of chaos, we get Moses singing. And I don't know what you call it, but they you would probably know the musical name for this if anyone here does, John, but the the use of um the, the, the recurrence of the, the general rhythm and the patter of All I've Ever Wanted early on.
2: It's a reprise because that's the leitmotif that is connected to Moses desiring something. Because all I ever wanted, which is one of my, again, one of my favorite songs, and a song that I will always sing along to, that's him desiring to have simplicity again. That's him wanting to be able to go back to a time when he didn't have to think about this. And in the middle of the plagues, that's what he was wanting. Because he's seeing this place that was his home being destroyed because Ramesses won't do the most simple thing in the world and let them go. And he wants it to be simple. He wants more than anything not to be the person that God sent.
0: It's an an effective reprisal. We haven't really talked about the actor's singing. Val Kilmer doesn't do his own singing here. No, no. He is dubbed by uh, Amic Byram in in those areas. And also you get like Sandra Bullock doesn't do her singing. Danny Glover doesn't do his. Helen Mirren doesn't do hers. But everyone else does do their own singing, including like, I, I really like the conclusion of the plagues where it comes into, to Ramesses and you get the refines Fiennes mm. bit where he, he is doing his own singing and it's a good, it's, he's giving a performance. Yeah? yeah. He's giving a really like, like dramatic performance. He's, he's not trying to do the kind of, of traditional clean, vocals that that the the moses uh actor is he is aware of his limitations as a, as yeah. a singer and he is channeling in all of the the emotion and the power of of what's going on for the character at the time and it's really really effective it's my favorite part of the song really especially as that starts to merge back in with with what moses is singing at the end
2: yeah the counterpoint
0: yeah I mean, I'm not saying that Ray Fiennes should be out there, you know, cutting albums or anything, but it really, really works. You, who I called brother, how could you have come to hate his soul?
1: Is this what you wanted? I said, I said. Then let my heart be hardened, and never mind how high the cost may grow, this will still be so. I will never let your.
2: It harmonizes beautifully. But he did an exceptionally good job. And, like, he can carry a tune. You can tell. It's not an exceptionally difficult tune, but he manages to give it enough musicality that you can tell that he's singing. And that's what you can say for even Michelle Pfeiffer as Zipporah, doing her bit in When You Believe. She does give it the emotion as well. She gives it the musicality. And it's interesting to me that they didn't get some of the other actors to sing the parts. Maybe it's because they're a little too technical. Like
0: You're overthinking this, John. I think it's just that the ones that didn't sing have shitty singing voices and can't carry a tune for the life of them. There are plenty of us out there.
2: Fair enough. I've, I've heard Val Kilmer sing and it's not the best thing in the world. But yeah, I think... Even the, the singers that they did get are fantastic.
0: Well, there's there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between the Moses singing part and the Ramesses and Miriam singing parts. Like Bullock and Fines hmm. can do like a verse or two in a single song, but Kilmer would have had to carry a whole bunch of songs if he did his own. Singing and stuff that really like holding notes, you know, going up and down in terms of of, of range. Like it would have been musically a lot more complicated than what Fines is asked to do, or what Bullock, um, what Pfeiffer is asked to do in um, in When You Believe. I said Miriam earlier; it was Sephora.
2: I do like you're playing with the big boys now.
0: See, I don't. There's something about it that, like the 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 general rhythm of it, I find to be really discordant.
2: We we are big fans of ancient Egypt and it's specifically ancient Egyptian mythology. So the name dropping of those gods, the idea that this is those old gods challenging this god. Judeo Christian god, the idea that the the simple fact that they the high priests said, you know, you. You know, you put up a fight. You you showed some spunk. You can study under us. You got you got some magical ability. Don't don't overthink it. Don't overestimate your abilities. I like it because it's very threatening. It's it is intense, and I love I like the priest characters. Steve Martin and Martin Short. Martin Short,
0: who recorded in the same room. I think they were the only two actors that did.
2: Obviously, you can tell. You can tell they've got they've got chemistry.
0: They're very good friends and collaborators in real life, and that their patter is very fun. I I really I like the scene where after the the chariot race, Moses dunks them in in wine, and Ramesses gets the blame for it. Where you you just hear the little what is clearly improvisational patter that they've got going on, like oh, it's my new thing. <laughs>
2: Ramses, get down here. You're in big
0: trouble, young man. I think you owe us an apology, (laughs) (laughs) Ramses. But uh, they've got their own Hulu show coming where they play two older guys living in an apartment building and there's a a younger female character in it as well who also lives in the apartment building and they basically team up to solve a murder that happens in the building.
2: That's awesome. awesome. Does Steve Martin play banjo in that show? Because he better. (laughs) because <laughs> that's a thing that i know about steve martin he plays a wicked banjo i don't know why but he Just does
0: yeah only murders in the building selena gomez is the the female lead
2: that's that's an interesting pick i think it that would be interesting
0: yeah hulu did a presentation of its forthcoming shows back in june and they did some some patter for it martin short said i'm so proud to say that this show is already one of the highlights of my career and Steve Martin went, I'm proud to say it's a blip on the radar of mine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they are funny. Yeah, they are funny. Yeah. And yeah, I, I I do like the playing with the big boys now because of how that entire scene just goes and to show did the sing, arrogance. They did sing that, right? Yes.
0: That almost to me reads like a song that was specifically written so that people who weren't precise singers could could do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it seems that way. And yeah, I, I, I do enjoy it and I like how that bit's animated, because you're seeing all of the moments where the high priests are obscuring things, and you can tell that they're Charlotte. charlotte. All of Moses' magic happens plain as day. Exactly. While theirs happens behind smoke and mirrors and lighting mm. effects. Although some of the shit that they do is pretty impossible, even with smoke and mirrors.
0: It is the only song, I'm just looking here, it appears to be the only song in the movie that is actually sung through by the actors playing Mm. the characters in in regular dialogue. Uh, Everything else is either like the the Moses voice actor where it's a different person or it's multiple characters singing and not all of them are the actors. That's the only full number where the actors take over.
2: Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the all of the stuff with Jethro and Zipporah, all of the relationship building with her and Moses?
0: I think it's it's interesting. I think it's fun. Jethro ends up being kind of a of a tertiary character. Oh,
2: of course, of course.
0: Yeah, there's just a little bit like like the importance of those characters are that they offer a glimpse to Moses of life outside the walls of the palace. You know, they give him perspective and they give him a home. They give him a home. Yeah. It's like it allows him to see people as people more than like it, it further moves along his his personal journey from being this prince who treated these slaves terribly to starting to look at people and seeing them all as equal. I I really do love this the 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 shot where after he speaks to the Bernie Bush where he runs into Zipporah and you get that shot of them in their tent from outside the tent so it's them in profile their shadows and it's just the 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 music playing you don't yeah. hear any of the audio as he explains what happened I mean I mean they 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 play it straight because it's a biblical yeah. you know thing but I also can't help but but wonder if you know you you run into your wife or your girlfriend. And you say, "Honey, I was out. I was taking the dog for a walk. There was a bush. It was on fire. And it talked to me, and it told me it was God." And like whether the reaction would be quite as understanding as what Zipporah displays.
2: She <laughs> has like, the patience of a saint. He's like, with this "I dude. know you didn't have a good time last time we were there, but I fi- I think we, we got go to back. go back to
0: Egypt." But it's like. Like, that's the heartbreaking part of her reaction is that she just puts her head in her hands because she knows what it means. She knows that that means that their lives are not never going to be simple and, and happy, that it's yeah. going to be defined by struggle yeah. forever. Yeah, and there's
2: no going back as well. And she knows that it's not even a question of whether to do it because it's come from God. Because it's inevitable. Yeah, and because she knows deep down that something has to be done about Egypt. Mm. And... Again, I really love the song, Through Heaven's Eyes.
1: So how do you measure the worth of a man In wealth or strength or size And how much he gained, or how much he gained The answer will come The answer will come to him who tries To look at his life through heaven's eyes And that's why we share all we have with you Though there's little to be found when all you've got is nothing, there's a lot to go around.
2: It's words to live by. It's about reframing your perspective and looking at your life through the lens of something bigger. It's through really the greater ex- good or through God or through whatever you want to call it. It's really existentialist. Yeah.
0: When You Believe is a really fantastic song as well, just as the, uh, the, the whole the visuals of it of all of these slaves finally free yeah. and walking together and, and helping each other and the all of the characters singing in the choir coming in. Like it's a it's a very effective emotional moment. <laughs> apparently they they changed the lyrics it was it was supposedly to begin with you can do miracles when you believe but then that that would cause some concern that that might be implying that human mm. beings could do miracles and that god wasn't responsible for them so they changed yeah. it to there can be miracles when you believe which i find to be a little bit ridiculous but whatever but that but then i really hate the Whitney Houston Mariah Carey version that plays in the end credits
2: yeah, I'm not, I'm not crash hot on it either.
0: Like, and I saw it, I've seen it a lot watching these old 90s animated movies. There's always the R&B cover of the most famous song in it at the end.
2: Yeah, the Radio Disney version.
0: And it's always terrible. Like, it's always just butchered. All of the personality is taken out of it and it's turned into a a, a generic, over-the-top sort of, of, wailing-sounding thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna have to disagree. I I like it. Just myself. Because I like the original song.
0: Oh, so do I.
2: Yeah, my, I just think it removes some of the character from. My, it. With the song for me, I find it so powerful because it's. Coming at it from a secular point of view, it's a. The definition of the miracle is. The definition of miracle is something seemingly impossible. And as human beings,. When we try, when we really believe in something, and we fight for that, yeah, we can make the seemingly impossible happen. And that's the ultimate message of that part of the film.
0: In any case, is there anything else that you guys would like to talk about? or
2: The All I Ever Wanted sequence with the with the hieroglyphs. Yeah. I think uh, that's fantastic. Uh, let's talk about... Uh, in... By that, the animation style. I I mentioned it briefly at the beginning, how it's got elements of, of 2D animation, but also some really early 3D animation. And it works really, really well. It's very well realized. Yeah, I agree. Because, like, that whole hieroglyph bit is in CG animation. Yeah. That's not drawn, that's done in a computer, and it's... It gives it a sense of unreality, it, the sense of it being a dream, like something that God is beaming down into his head. Mm. And just the that sequence is heartbreaking to watch because Moses is he's begging to be able to live the simple life, but then he gets shown multiple reasons why that can't be the case, yeah. that life isn't as simple. Let's get into the parents' Parents guide. guide. What do the parents have to say, Lawson? The pearl clutches.
0: Well, the male slaves wear only loincloths.
2: No shit. (laughs) I mean, what do you expect, dude? It's ancient Egypt. They're not wearing jeans.
0: (laughs) Moses washes near the intrusive aid of some old women and clearly doesn't want them there. We then briefly see him standing there with a small cloth slash towel covering his groin until a robe, robe is put around him. A Hebrew slave woman is presented to two princes as a gift. She is wearing a midriff-bearing outfit. The princes proceed to haze her in what could be considered sexual harassment. No shit! That's the that's yes, underselling of what that scene that's is. That's the point That of is it. the point. I don't understand these people. But then the only other thing here is in profanity. Only insults are used, including weak link and desert cobra. I don't know, some of these parents' guides are not as funny as some of the others, you know? No, but It, that's it really like... goes week by week.
1: Yeah, I that's... mean, I,
0: I feel like we should keep recording them, but also cut them if they don't play.
2: What's in the intent What is in the intense scenes?
0: All so serious stuff. There's nothing funny there. There's, you know, kill- children dying and, and things like oh, that.
2: Oh, okay. Okay, fair the, enough. The legitimately intense and scary stuff. Can you quickly just check what's in the one for Shrek? We'll get to that when we cover Shrek, buddy. Uh, I know. Because they're gonna have to have that. Bit... Finding an intense scenes, they... John Lithgow.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, we did that. It's the best stunt casting that DreamWorks did was getting Lithgow in there.
2: Yeah. Can you imagine if Lithgow played the Pharaoh in this? Do they do they have the bit where you see the outline of Farquaad's schlong? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's just oh, me.
2: Hang on. That's like that whole thing with that the. Like priest at the end of Little Mermaid. It's, no, it's not his it's dick. in here.
0: It's in here. Lord Farquaad pulls up his sheet whilst looking at pictures of Princess Fiona, and an erection is implied.
2: Yeah, you see the outline okay. of his hog. <laughs> <laughs> Don't call it his hog, man. Don't.
0: But then, the I, I this is the last one we'll do for Shrek, because we'll get to it later, but the, the first entry in Frightening and Intense sh- Scenes for Shrek is Shrek is seen eating eyeballs in the opening. This may unsettle some viewers. <laughs>
2: I'd say so. It, it, I have to say, Shrek made me wonder what eyeball tastes like.
0: Like pickled, uh, pickled onions, probably.
2: The texture just, ugh. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. The weird laving effect, I think, Yeah, I, would it, be so strange. Oh. I, I, have seen too many episodes of bloody, I'm um, a celebrity, get me out of here, but they eat, like, Ox's eyeball or whatever. Or, or they eat like Jaguar testicles. Apparently, yeah, it's like gooey on the outside, really crunchy. Really crunchy on the, on the outside because it's what got the lenses.
0: Yeah, I was going to say because you have all of the nerves and the different wiry parts that connect it to the brain.
2: Yeah. It's apparently just this bizarre mouthfeel. Please don't use that term. <laughs> no. Jesus Christ. I I, I appreciate that mouthfeel is a thing. I do. I do. That's part of the reason why there are some foods that I just can't eat. Because... No matter how much I. Like the taste, not like eyes. I'm not a cannibal. I want to put that on the record. I'm not a cannibal. Well,
0: it doesn't have to be human eyes, John.
2: You're the one implied that you're eating human eyes. I just wanted to put it out there for the world to know. I do not eat human beings. Just saying.
0: We are, we are, we are an anti-cannibalism podcast. I know that that is a that is a a strong position that may lose us some listeners, but. We really do have to draw our line in the sand here. We are a pro-Lithgow, pro-Werewolf, anti-cannibalism, anti-Josh Hutchison Hutchison podcast. I
2: will smack you, (laughs) I swear to God. I don't have anything against Josh Hutchison. I just think Peter is a useless character. His job is pointless. He's pointless. I ship her with Gale. We have to watch the Hunger Games, man. We gotta cover it.
0: Oh yeah, every Josh Hutchison movie I see, we will be doing an episode <laughs> specifically because of this.
2: I don't hate Josh Hutchison. I cannot say it. Do at all. you watch
0: the second half of Bridge of Terabithia, just like sitting there crying furiously, going, "It should have been you. It should have been you, Josh Hutchison."
2: No, I don't watch Bridge of Terabithia because I don't want to be sad.
0: See, that is like it's. It's only funny because there are like months and months we go without mentioning. The Josh a bit. And then when we finally do, you always get so <laughs> angry.
2: <laughs> yes, I know. We're also anti-snake. Yes, anti-snake. Uh, uh, I think ambivalent. Are we pro-Valkilmer? Eh,
0: ambivalent. He's been good in things, he's been terrible in things. He's very inconsistent.
2: Okay. It really depends. But we're pro-Han Zimmer. We
0: are pro yeah. Hans Zimmer. Un- yes.
2: Undeniably. Think, like, A lot of people, just to get back onto the topic of Prince of Egypt, finally, after that whole debacle just then, Hans Zimmer wasn't the only person who did, like, orchestrations for stuff and production on stuff. A lot of people from Remote Control Productions did little touches on things. Like, you got John Powell, even Harry Gregson Williams did a few, you know, he conducted a few bits. And his brother Rupert? I think Rupert had a part. I don't think Rupert was in remote control at that point. But all of the score in this movie, all of the music, it's so thoroughly orchestrated and done very well. Mm. Everything sounds fantastic. It's the Lion King thing where the songs have the zimmery touches to them and so does the score. And this is like early Zimmer too. So Mm. this isn't Zimmer. This is still when he was happy to work with an orchestra that this wasn't is when being he was making melodies. a computer. Sure, I don't think he ever stopped making melodies, but sure. Yeah. This is when he was still working with more of an orchestra. He was less, you know, making Lou Reed's Metal Machine music. Mm. It's just a guitar through a computer.
0: Yeah. Anyways, why don't we move into who our MVP is and what our favourite scene or sequence is. For Prince of Egypt. I will start us off and I will say that my MVP is, I thought I wrote this down, it'd be annoying if I didn't. Yes, Hans Zimmer and Stephen Schwartz. Hans Zimmer composed the music and Stephen Schwartz did the lyrics for the songs. I think that the music is just excellent in this movie. It sets the tone so well. The Plagues and Deliver Us are two of my favorite musical songs ever. And to that end, I also have to say that my favorite scene or sequence is The Plagues, that whole musical number. I think it's so well realized. You're seeing the horror of what's going on, but they, they keep the personal insight with the 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 Moses-Rameses development. It's really well done, and I just adore that thumping, you know, dramatic chorus. What about you, Sean? I have to
2: say Hans Zimmer and Stephen Schwartz as well if not for all of the reasons that you mentioned, but working together on what would become The Burning Bush, which is, I repeat, my second favourite melody and piece of music in the world. And it's just... It's got all of the musicality of Lion King, but with the added oomph of Stephen Schwartz's powerful lyrics, which I enjoy a lot. And... My favorite part of the movie is the whole thing, and I don't. I try not to say this often because it's a little cheap, and it's a little. It's a <laughs> shut <laughs> up. <laughs> but honestly, for this movie, I can't pick a favorite point because every time I watch it, a different part hits me differently. Like every time I see it, every time I listen to a specific song from from it. Even when I listen to versions of the songs from the musical, th- different things jump out at me. And I can't narrow down a specific moment. I think, well, for this... Because I talked about it a lot, for this viewing, I'll say the that scene, that second brotherly scene after the plagues. The chariot, right? The chariot. No, after the plagues. Oh, that no,
0: scene. Yeah. Where he goes back to Ramesses. Yeah.
2: yeah. That because that moves the plot along very well, but also reminds you of what has been lost personally, and and it's got that fantastic moment where you see Ramesses do exactly what Seti did, but with a lot more vitriol and anger behind it, because Seti was he makes all these excuses and he says. There were only slaves. And he's minimizing it, but that's so he doesn't feel like a complete monster. And I can... I don't, I don't think it's a, the right thing, but I can see why he's doing that. Mm. Why he's saying that. Whereas what Ramesses is doing is he is doing it purely out of viciousness and purely out of anger and spite. And I... I just think that entire scene is fantastic, and that switch that happens with Ramesses when his son asks, "Isn't he the person who did all this?" Mm. is just—it's—it's it's hard to watch. Yeah, I—I I concur about Hans Zimmer, But to give this a bit of variety, mm-hmm. I'd have to say the animators. This is a gorgeous-looking movie. Yeah, its use of shadow, CG, two D animation—it's just. The colour choice Wonderful is to look at. All like, the colours in the Red Sea section. Yeah, it's just phenomenal. It looks gorgeous. Frightening. Intense. It's just wonderful. My favourite scene is hard to pick, but just for this viewing, I was hit really hard by the Passover. Yeah. And how... Utterly frightening. Yeah. That is. How it almost feels like a cosmic horror. The sky opening up and bleeding out this white energy. Yeah. And it just killing the children. Yeah. The one that bothered me the most was when this kid's walking up into their house with a, like a... Probably a jug of water. Yeah, a jug of water. The, The creeping death just... Flies into the house. You hear it suck the breath out of the kid. You hear the part smash. Then the hand yeah. just comes Not, out of the door out, frame. Yeah, and that was so troubling. Yeah, it's a handled very well. It's a terrifyingly calm scene. Yeah, it's it's harsh but soft in a really upsetting way. And yeah. it, it hit me really hard this time. So, Lawson, what have we got next week?
0: Well, next week we will be talking about the Wes Anderson comedy Rushmore, which you guys have never seen, is that correct? It is very, very good. It is his first collaboration with uh, Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman, and it is the really the crystallization of the Wes Anderson form. Bottle Rocket is sort of a anomaly in the early goings of it. He's still figuring things out. So this is the first time that we really see the the Wes Anderson that we all know and love and it's fantastic. If you would like to watch along at home, it is available for purchase or rental on both the iTunes and YouTube stores.
2: You can find us at our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit to the Candy Counter. You can find John and I at On the Bright Side. You can also find us at our Twitter. All of those links will be in the description wherever it appears when you put our step of choice. Like... Subscribe, share share this with friends. Uh, Give us a bit of feedback on the the do-the-comment systems, because those not only help us, you know, assess what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, but it also looks very good for the algorithm, that almighty algorithm that decides on whether we get seen or not, because each comment shows audience engagement and all that sort of thing. But just keep in mind, it's not for any specific episode, it's for the show in general. At least that's how it is on the Apple yeah, one. Yeah, how it I, appears. It could be different on the Spotify one or the Wushka one. Yeah. Also, give us some feedback on how you are finding the show. Are you finding it through the Facebook ads that Lawson has been paying for for the past two months, it seems?
0: Oh no, longer than that. I've been paying for it since the Lion King episode.
2: Yeah. yeah. Just, let no- just let Lawson know if it's worth it. Yeah. Anyway, so I've been Holly Lewis.
0: I've been Wilson Keeney.
2: And I have been, and I will continue to
0: be
1: Lewis.